This is like, I don't know why I'm saying this. We need to just delete all of this, but I just have to say it now. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yolan Barrer. With me here is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. We are socially distancing from each other, and that makes me kind of sad. Yeah, I'm kind of sad, too. Uh, as much as I harass you uh, in person, I, uh, I I like being next to you, Yoel. So uh, uh, I'm glad we can do this uh, remotely, and uh, we have a special guest as well. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so who is this mystery guest, Mickey? Well, we've got none other than Nina Strominger with us uh, today. And uh, in addition to her being a uh, Twitter superstar, she's also an assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Um, I know I don't mention the uh, where our guests get uh, their bachelor's degree, but uh, I want to mention it because uh, we went to the same university. Uh, so Nina got her uh, BA in Cognitive Sciences from Brown University, her PhD in Psychology from the University of Michigan, Michigan and then um, was a postdoctoral fellow at Duke and at Yale uh, before her current position. Uh, so Nina studies all kinds of things. Generally, if it's interesting, Nina studies it. Uh, I think broadly speaking, uh, studies emotion, uh, especially disgust, um, the true self and the moral self, death and fashion. Um, Nina is also, uh, she's, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, but she's a brilliant writer. Um, funny, evocative, and engaging. And uh, those are three words I hardly, hardly ever use to describe academic prose. Um, but this is the case. And I, I, I've, I've have so many like things I want to quote from your writing, Nina. I, I, with your permission, I'm going to read a little bit from one of your papers. Um, this is from uh, an author reply from an emotion review uh, paper from 2014. And I'll read a bit of it, and we'll see how much we keep. Um, the fetishization of parsimony means that unwieldy theories are often dismissed on these grounds alone. But it is the theories which are unafraid of chaos that are best able to handle nebulae or nebula. And messy theories should not only be tolerant of penumbral fuzz around the edges, but receptive to the possibility that the nebula contains no central essential core. No doubt there is something less satisfying about settling for inelegance, but the best theories won't always feel right. Elegance is not a, sub a suitable heuristic for veracity. Anyways, I read that. I love it. I love every word of that. Um, I also note that Nina is a proud Baltimorean. Um, so welcome to the show, Nina. Oh, thank you for having me. I now feel that it's somewhat odd that um, that passage was ghostwritten. I, I hire someone to do all of my academic writing. Oh my God, you and Drake. Yeah, that's, <laughs> we have a lot in common, me and Drake. We're both like, you know, sad boys um, who hire ghostwriters. Um, so yeah, so we're excited to, to, to have you on and talk to you about all different kinds of things. But you, well, I've interrupted you. Oh, uh, no, I think we should move on to uh, what we're drinking or not today. Sure. Uh, well, I'll start. I I really wanted to have this beer with you, Yoel, uh, because we, this is a, a listener-donated beer. Uh, this is for um, Corinna Michels, who is a postdoc from the University of Cologne in Germany, who came to visit my lab for a few weeks. And she brought with her some, some beer from Cologne. So what I've got here is a Helios, um, a so-called vice beer. Um, it's brewed in uh, Brostel, which is Cologne's smallest brewery. 
Um, and she wrote here, she wrote some, some like tasting notes for me. So Weiss is considered to be the uh, origin of today's Kolsch, which is a very popular beer in um, Cologne. And this is an unfiltered Kolsch, uh, 4.9%, a small little teeny bottle. Um, by teeny, I mean regular size. So I'm looking forward to drinking this. And you, Yoel? Adorable. Well, uh, because it's pandemic times, all the usual rules go out the window. And uh, so I'm, I'm drinking wine here. This is uh, like a $15 bottle of Italian red from the LCBO. So it's nothing fancy, but I've, I've managed to not uh, acquire the ability to distinguish good from bad wine, which is, I feel like I, I really want to keep that up. So I, I train my palate uh, extensively on the sub $20 bottle range. I think it's an amazing skill that you can't differentiate the good and bad wine. I think it's a skill that will keep on giving. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Nina, you're you're uh, proudly flouting the show, show's rules, huh? Uh, yes. I'm drinking um, an oolong tea. So I, there's so much to talk about uh, with you, uh, Nina. Uh, about your research, it's all so interesting. Um, so I'm just – I kind of – put together a bunch of questions and I've kind of went uh, chronologically in terms of the topics you've covered. Um, uh, so we'll start, I guess, from the beginning. Uh, so I, you know, the way I first uh, got to hear of your research was with your research on disgust. So I wonder if we can just talk a little bit about that. Um, UL also, of course, is uh, quite an expert on that. But um, you know, what do you think disgust is? What do you think its function is? Um, you know, I've got another quote, but I think, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Oh, well, disgust is an interesting emotion, right? Because it seems to have many functions uh, that are not just limited, for instance, to the like kind of obvious non-metaphorical domain. Um, and uh, what I've argued is that they uh, all these different functions, um, they are not sort of, it's not like a, a, a beautiful picture. We're not just going to find like, one clear function, it just does X, Y, and Z. Um, it seems to have gotten kind of garbled with uh, other capacities uh, over time. Um, so uh, the kind of uh, traditional line, um, when I say traditional, I guess I mean the most widely accepted line about disgust uh, is that it's an emotion that's designed to um, have people avoid pathogens. Uh, of course, as we are uh, now all learning, uh, fear is also effective for avoiding pathogens. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but um, but I, I digress. Um, so um, the traditional sources of feeling of physical disgust are uh, things that are traditionally vectors of disease, um, body effluvia, um, and uh, animal parts and carcasses um, and uh, rotting uh, food. And these are all uh, very effective, not just transmitters of um, infectious disease, um, but also, and this is and in part why disgust seems like a sort of a blended emotion, um, uh, things that can make you sick, uh, gustatorily speaking, um, but that aren't pathogens per se. So things that are poisonous, for instance, um, we will feel um, disgust at. Um, and so more sophisticated arguments about disgust say that, well, you know, it wasn't just about pathogen avoidance, but also avoiding poisons, you know, anything kind of uh, along the digestive tract. Um, and then it kind of uh, spiraled outward from there. It wasn't just about gustation uh, and, and digestion, but also about, you know, um, uh, any kind of violation to the body envelope, uh, sexual violations. Uh, and then, of course, you can go, you know, even wider and more metaphorical and talk about, you know, uh, disgust at outsiders, 
So like perhaps discuss seems to undergird, you know, uh, xenophobia, homophobia. I know that UL has some work on that, um, which may or may not replicate. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> we don't need to get into that now. It's sort of that was a dick, Are you going to stand for this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> just move on uh it's hit or uh, miss to be honest we can we we can get into it if we want but this is like real yeah in the no one, i mean yeah it's not it's not important the point is that ul's research does not replicate at all and uh we don't <laughs> <laughs> that's clearly the important point <laughs> so that's that's what if if i want listeners to take home one thing from this episode that should right. be the thing that's right that is what I came on this episode to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then also, um, uh, just to complete my thought, uh, moral disgust. Um, so uh, dis- the disgust uh, that we feel at um, um, various kind of crimes um, against humanity. Yeah. So um, if I can just jump in here, uh, you know, this idea of disgust being involved in in moral judgment, this is something that was – just becoming uh, popular, I guess, uh, at around the time that I was finishing up grad school. I guess for Nina, it was around the same time too. Um, in your career, I mean, and and I was really profoundly influenced by that. Um, and now looking back, um, how much do we still believe that? Especially since the work that I thought demonstrated it in the cleanest way—these experimental disgust inductions. And showing that those have an effect on moral judgment. So basically, you expose people to an unrelated, disgusting stimulus. It could be a messy desk. It could be a disgusting odor. And that then makes them harsher in their moral judgments. That was sort of, to me, the kind of most convincing evidence that disgust has this um, unreasoned influence on people's moral judgments. And that research, it, it's sort of questionable how well that stuff replicates. Right. I would say that for these disgust inductions are supposed to carry over and affect an unrelated judgment that there's some real replicability uh, problems there. And so does that undermine our confidence in that theoretical assertion that disgust is involved in moral judgment in some sort of special way beyond just being like a feeling of negativity makes you more negative towards lots of things? Um, well, I think that the, that, that, uh, this, the problem you're identifying is too narrow. Uh, it's that emotion induction studies in general uh, fail to prime subsequent judgment and behavior in any reliable way. It's not specific to disgust. It seems to be specific to the method, um, which um, is both good news and bad news. So it's bad for the reason that you're implying, Yoel, which is that, well, <laughs> this is like the one thing that we had to uh, demonstrate cause and effect is that we would experimentally manipulate the emotion and then measure the judgment. And you you really want that if you want to be able to make a causal claim. Um, the fact that that's very difficult to get with any emotion and any kind of judgment is the reason why I don't really study emotions anymore, honestly. Um, that those effects are fragile at best, and that's the charitable interpretation, is that they're fragile. Okay, I, I want to I I I unpack this. This is so fascinating. I didn't think we'd go in this direction, but this is this is awesome. Um, so that's a pretty big claim. Um, so any uh, induction of an emotion, an experimental induction of an emotion, you're saying won't reliably affect judgments and decisions. I'm saying that 
it doesn't no they yeah that doesn't seem to no uh, but i would also make um another claim uh which is that our faith in in what this is has the capacity to demonstrate has been misguided so um uh you know if all you were setting out to do was to say something about emotion affects judgment in some way in in a way that maybe you would say is irrational because it's an incidental influence, it's not like integral to the judgment, then fine. Um, but that's actually not what most researchers were trying to do when they ran these studies, particularly, say, with moral judgment. They're trying to make a stronger claim about the role of emotion in moral cognition. And that if you could find this penetration of the incidental affect into the subsequent judgment, that this actually told you something meaningful about how much emotional processing is comprised within moral cognition. But I don't think that's true at all. So, for instance, if you were to run a study um, um, where you had people feel sad or say disgusted, but let's just say sad uh, or neutral, um, and then they did a bunch of math problems, and then you found the people in the sad condition didn't solve as many math problems, no one would argue that mathematical cognition requires emotion and, and sadness in particular. Right. And yet this is the fallacious reasoning that the field has been using for at this point at least 15 years. Um, so I think that, I mean, it, it, it sucks that it seems like this research doesn't replicate very well. But at the same time, I think the field has always been deluding itself about what the research even had the power to tell us. Nina, has there been a meta-analysis that looks broadly at emotion inductions and spillover effects? Because I know for disgust, one thing that I thought was really convincing was that Justin Landy paper, right? That, that showed that essentially like the effects uh, in aggregate were negligible. So if you look at just carryover effects in general, like there's there's not much there. there. So depending on like what sort of bias correction you do, it could be zero or it could be very small, but at any rate, like small enough that it's like, how are you ever going to run that study? You would need N of, you know, thousands. So has that been done for emotion inductions more broadly? There's no meta and view paper I'm aware of that I'm writing that's really good. Um. <laughs> really? I heard it was terrible, actually. Uh <laughs> Yeah, well, the it's 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 goodness may or may not replicate uh reader to reader. Um but um there are people who are interested in this question, but quantitative meta-analysis I, I don't know of any. Yeah, I'm curious like who is still trying to do this sort of research. Right? I one find thing I find really striking is that there's certain kinds of research that basically seem to have dried up once our methods improved, right? And it's like, wow, like nobody's trying to do um, these crazy behavioral priming studies anymore. They're just disappeared, right? And what makes me think is that you just can't get that stuff to work if you don't p-hack, right? Like once you have to pre-register and run bigger samples and all that stuff, it's just not possible to get those effects. That's, that's my take. And I, I wonder, like, are we still seeing... Like one thing that would convince me is to see emotion carryover effects in like a bigger pre-registered study. And I don't know of any. I don't know if anybody has tried. I also I, I don't know of large scale failures in the way that like ego depletion has had or whatever. Right. I I think maybe it's that the idea seems so reasonable to people that they're not motivated to to question it. Like Mickey, you seemed surprised that somebody would say this. 
Very much so. I, I, absolutely. I mean, I'm obviously you, both of us, you all, you and I are very well versed in the, you know, open science movement, publication stuff. Um, but, uh, the big ones, obviously, ego depletion in my world, startup threat, um, and uh, behavioral priming. But I, I, no, I, I don't, not aware of the, what you're describing as major replication issues with, I want to make sure I know what we're talking about. Like, Emotion induction on judgment and decision-making specifically. Some unrelated judgment. Right, right. So it, it just seems so plausible that, like, I don't know, somebody watches a scary movie, um, and then it makes them more vigilant for unrelated threats, right? Um, it would be really weird if that didn't happen sometimes. Um. Well, okay, so but there's a number of things that can get in the way of this, right? So... Um, all emotion priming studies rely, they have a, and a very important assumption, which is the misattribution of the affect. Um, that uh, this unrelated thing that you're just feeling a certain way, and, and then uh, when you're in a, a supposedly unrelated um, um, activity, that you'll then misattribute your affect. So um, emotion induction that is integral to the to what you're judging uh, seems like well yeah I mean that's the whole point of <laughs> having emotions uh, it, you know if there is one it's uh, to change behaviors um, but that you add this layer of tenuousness when you ask uh, that we assume that people are going to reliably mis misattribute their emotions in a new context. I mean, the reason why it's reliable is because you have cues in front of them, right? So you have this incidental thing. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, the uh, uh, that one famous study conducted, what is it, in Vancouver when they're crossing that scary bridge. And all, lo and behold, um, people are more attracted to this this attractive confederate. I know that probably doesn't replicate, so I'm not, I don't care about that one study. But in, in, in this case, you know, it, it's the reason why, um, you know, I think it, I, I at least think it could be a reliable uh, misattribution is that the cue is so salient there, right? The the experiment is attractive and she's right there in front of you. Um, so is it so unlikely that someone might, you know, you know, misattribute their faster heart rate and sweating, et cetera, to this, to this person? Do, does that study replicate? No. So I, I, I agree. I'm not sure if it does. I doubt it. But I, I guess I feel like I've had just in life the experience of carryover effects. I, I don't know if, if they even require misattribution, right? So you have a bad day at work, you have a nasty interaction with a colleague, you come home, you take it out on your significant other. You watch a scary movie, it's dark afterwards, there's a noise, and you jump much more than you would have otherwise, right? So it's not that I'm like confused really about where the irritation or the fear is coming from. It's just that it puts me into a frame of mind where then I'm more easily scared or more easily annoyed. Well, um, another reason uh, that you that it might be difficult to find these effects reliably, and why the effect sizes seem so small in the laboratory, is that they're usually induced with a much kind of weaker prime, uh, and it's also usually like a more tenuous connection. Um, so, like s seeing a scary movie uh, or documentary or something, and then you feel scared, and you now you feel more vigilant, and you know what is that sound outside? I mean, this is um, has a, a level of um, veridicality um, that uh, that it's really hard to replicate on an, online or even in a lab. I will say that, and this this semi contradicts something that I said earlier, but I'm comfortable with that. Um, 
back when I was running discuss priming studies and finding things sort of pretty unreliably, you know, uh, effects that were only reliable if I, if I controlled the stimuli in a really precise and seemingly arbitrary way, uh, supposedly for good reasons, but I see now kind of in retrospect, like, I don't know if I trust any of those as good reasons. Um, but in any case, mysterious reasons. And um, uh, I was looking at, uh, you know, uh, would people find humor funnier or cartoons funnier when they were disgusted? I did find that. I found it reliably, again, with my narrow way of priming it. Um, but the effect size was very small. Um, whereas um, when I shook, because as my control, I showed um, people pictures uh, after being disgusted. I showed them pictures of food and asked them to judge the appetizingness of the food. And that effect size was just gigantic. You know, it was like half of, you know, half of the whole Likert scale was jumping. Um, and, you know, uh, so it seems non-accidental that f uh, for, um, uh, for, for food disgust, I was uh, able for that prime uh, to really work. But for moral disgust, the prime was just... Um, practically nil. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this comes back to something we've talked about on the podcast before, which is that often uh, a body of research using a, a paradigm starts with kind of the the intuition is something that happens in life that we can all relate to. So for ego depletion, for example, it would be, you know, you come home and you're tired and you decide to eat a box of Oreos rather than cooking dinner, right? And we can all relate to that. And fatigue is real for sure. But then the paradigm is about crossing out ease and, you know, completing uh, unsolvable anagram tasks or whatever. Um, and it, it feels like this uh, flavor of the same thing going on here, right? We're asking for carryover to like conceptually really distal DVs. And because we are trying to run these things online or we're, you know, trying to do this in the easiest possible way. We're using kind of weak inductions where instead of having somebody like, I don't know, having a confederate insult somebody, it's remember a time somebody made you angry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, I wonder if we can uh, move on to uh, a different topic. Um, so I didn't, I don't think I knew this about you, Nina, that you kind of completely abandoned uh, this work, but I guess I should have known looking at your, at your CV. Um, I think the stuff that many of us are really excited about, uh, in terms of your work, is your work on um, the so-called true self and the moral self, um, where uh, you find essentially that, uh, you know, in these various scenario studies or vignettes, you know, people somehow go through some sort of transformation and you ask them, you know, how much would this person change if different faculties, you know, have been removed from them? And I, th I think essentially you find that... Um, uh, people will rate that person as being more different if their moral faculties, their moral character, um, is is has been changed. So I, I wonder if you could just kind of dive in a little bit in that research, maybe describe a one or two of the studies um, that you ran on this, and and why you think you 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 made these drew these conclusions about uh, the moral self and the true self. Yeah, well, you know, uh, this whole line of research started very serendipitously. Um, I was watching, um, binge watching the X-Files, um, as one does, and I noticed that there were a lot of episodes where, um, people's souls would leave their body and go into another body. 
But what was curious to me about these storylines is that the souls um, would only selectively port over some of the traits. So it would port over someone's criminality, but it wouldn't port over their diabetes, uh, right? The diabetes would be in the, you know, the, the host's body. Um, and, uh, and, and like some of the memories would move, but the, not all of them. And so I just, uh, completely on a whim was like, well, you know, um, with my collaborator, Sean Nichols, who's a philosopher now at Cornell, um, I said, well, you know, let's just, you know, run some big kitchen sink study and see like, do people have reliable intuitions about what sort of traits would get ported over with the soul? Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, and we, you know, we, you could imagine there's a lot of covariates that might have sort of influenced this. So how religious you are. Um, do you believe in a soul? Do you think that spiritual or soul possession is even possible? Um, uh, how much do you believe in mind body dualism? And I'll just sort of spare you the suspense. None of that actually matters. Um, the degree to which you have an explicit belief, you know, does a soul exist is irrelevant to your responding on these tasks. Everyone, it turns out, shares the intuition that uh, souls tend to have moral features. They have other mental features, but not as strongly or as reliably. Maybe they have some memories. Um, maybe they have some of your preferences. Maybe they even a little bit have some physical kind of characteristics, but they really powerfully have moral features. And now you might be thinking, well, this is the soul. And so in the way that this is taught in sort of the Judeo-Christian re sort of uh, religion is um, that it's moral, right? The, the soul is the part of yourself that, that uh, follows you into the afterlife and it's judged by God. Uh, and so maybe it's just that we all know there's this cultural teaching about the soul. Um, so uh, many of our, our subsequent studies, instead of asking in this very indirect way about the soul, we ask... You know, how different would someone be? Uh, how much would their identity have changed or their self uh, would have changed? Um, and we find the exact same pattern. So, for instance, we have a paradigm where we say, um, imagine that you were to take a pill that selectively removed or changed this trait in you. How different would you be as a result of taking this pill? Um, and again, in this kind of medical context, people say, I would be the most changed or my friend would be the most changed um, if they went from uh, being kind-hearted to being mean uh, than if, uh, if, if they lost all their memories or if they no longer wanted to be a doctor uh, and so forth and so on. Just out of curiosity, uh, what was number two? Was there a consistent number two? Was there a consistent thing that also people pin to uh, a sense of self other than morality? Yes, um, I would say consistently in the studies where we've measured personality traits, um, people, uh, that's usually comes next in line. Um, and I don't think it's just because that it's about traits, um, because, because that might be one, one question. Maybe it's just about someone's traits and some moral traits specifically, but we've, we've run so many of these studies in so many different ways. It doesn't matter whether it's traits or uh, moral behaviors or moral beliefs, they're still privileged above uh, personality traits. Um, but by the way, when I say personality traits, uh, all I mean is, um, you know, uh, traits that someone has that are low in moralization. Of course, there are some personality traits, um, especially depending on the scale you look at, that are high in moralization. Um, and so then we would just put those in the morality camp. Um, right. Yeah. So you're talking about something like extroversion, for example. Um, 
right, right. Oh, as a as a low moralization, as a non moral yes. yeah. personality trait. That's right, yeah. or a sense of humor, or intelligence, or creativity. All of these are things that are highly prized and desirable, um, and, and yet people uh, don't think that they're as important to personal identity uh, as as something even like um, uh, humility or honesty uh, or or kindness. Right. So. When you talk about people's conceptions of personal identity, I'm curious, how do people think about when a person changes morally? I mean, that does happen, right? Somebody's a terrible person and they realize how terrible they are and they change for the better. Or I suppose, I guess it could happen in the reverse that you thought somebody was fine and then you actually find out that they're, they're awful or they become awful. Are people literally thinking, Oh, that's now a different person? Or is that in some ways kind of a metaphorical use of that to say they've really changed? Like, how are people thinking about that? I don't think it's either. There's a third option that I think. So in, um, in our initial papers about this, we talked about this as numerical identity, meaning, um, that, and, and this is, of course, hard to convey in English. Um, but, uh, the idea is that this is, um, one and the same person. And so if, if you're saying that it's no longer the same person, it means it's not one and the same person. Um, and the kind of uh, following that to its logical conclusion, that would mean things like, um, if I say it's no longer the same person, you can't access your bank accounts anymore. This isn't the same person who owes you that favor that they owed you last week. Uh, they should or should not go to jail for the crimes of that past person. And so if we really mean this in the numerical identity sense, then all of those things should apply. Um, uh, me and, uh, Kevin, uh, Tobia have run some studies showing that that's not reliably how people are applying this. Um, it turns out there's another kind of identity that philosophers talk about rather than numerical identity. There's also something called qualitative identity. And this just refers to overall feature similarity, right? So you could say two spoons that are made on the same conveyor belt are, uh, not numerically identical, right? Cause one could belong to me and the other to Mickey. Um, but they are qualitatively identical. All of the molecules in their relation to one another could be uh, identical. Um, uh, in a in a series of studies that I ran um, with uh, Vilius Transeka, who is Lithuanian, uh, and Sean Nichols, we have um, we have taken this into uh, another language to to show that it, it. By the way, it occurs to me no one cares about this at all, but I'm telling you because it's like cool. Um, That's great. Just we'll we'll just cut it all out. Good. Later. I was assuming that was going to happen for the entire interview, actually. Um, <laughs> but, it's going to be our shortest episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, introduced and then closing credits and that's it. Yeah, 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 no, word. Um I wonder if there's a more interesting way to to, to say this, but in Lithuanian, um they have a linguistic morpheme that specifies this distinction between numerical identity and qualitative identity. Um, and when we ask Lithuanians, "Hey, <laughs> this guy changed on his moral traits. Do you think he's identity type numerical change, uh, or qualitative identity change, or both, or neither. It's a really striking and unmistakable pattern. Um, the Lithuanians say, qualitative only, numerically the same guy. Um, so I think that that's really, really strong, elegant, not experimenter demandy type of uh, proof um, that we probably were never really talking about numerical identity, um, but rather this uh, kind of overall gestalt similarity kind of sense. 
But there's another, I think, way to um, interpret Yoel's question, which is, are we seeing, when someone changes, are we seeing them as actually transformed? Like, or are we seeing them as revealing some inner essence that was always there? You know, sort of like a, a butterfly emerging from a cocoon, even though it, it looks very different. But is it just like kind of realizing it's it's kind of inner purpose or telos or something? Um, and the answer to that is a bit more murky. It seems to depend in part on how positive the trait is. So if it's a if it's a positive trait, we tend to say, and this is based on work of uh, Rebecca Schlegel. Uh, and company, uh, if it's a positive trait change, we tend, whether it's in ourselves or others, we tend to say, um, this true self is, or this person who they really are is just being revealed. It was always there. There was that inner potential and now it's being revealed. Um, but if it's a negative trait change, we tend to say that, um, it's not their true self being revealed, um, but rather just in a kind of overall change that's happened to them. I wonder, uh, Nina, if I can ask you a question about the uh, this difference between uh, the numerical self and the was it the qualitative self. Is that what you called it? Yeah, identity rather than self, but yeah. Okay, numerical identity. Uh, sorry, uh, qualitative identity. Um, so uh, I'm glad you brought that up, and it seems like you've responded to some of your critics um, because uh, a friend of the show, Paul Bloom, let us know. We, we told him we were, we were hanging out with you, talking with you, and he uh, sent us one of his papers with one of our colleagues, uh, Christina Starmans, um, who uh, suggested that your studies uh, uh, were more about, again, uh, similarity than uh, numerical identity. So is it the case that you responded to this critique or you've, you've been thinking about this all along um, and were setting out studies to differentiate between these kind of these the senses of identity? Well, Paul's been saying that to me for years um, before he put it into print. Uh, and so these studies were in response not to the print criticism, but to the in-person conversations that we had. He's like, I really don't think it's numerical. And I never felt, and I think the same is true of Sean as well, we never really felt like anything in particular hinged on whether it's numerical or some other type of identity. Um, the only reason we put it in there to begin with is because a reviewer asked us to. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> um, the reviewer was like, hey, like, shouldn't you say what kind of identity it is? Um, and the reviewer was a philosopher and understandably wanted some conceptual precision. Um, and I think at the time, uh, it was reasonable to think that that's what was going on. It certainly seemed like that was what was going on. But convergent evidence is, I think, suggesting otherwise. Hey, Mickey, can I just ask a clarification question? So you you told Paul that we were going to have Nina on. And his response is, let me send you this paper about how she's wrong. Is that is that correct? <laughs> uh, more or less. He also did uh, ask me to uh, – he wanted to make sure that, Nina, you were not angry with him. He was very fearful that you would be angry with him. So uh, Angry about what? Uh, about me even bringing this up. I'm not sure why he would oh. be angry. He obviously, obviously knows, he knows that you know about it. Um, right. Um, yeah, I'm no, I'm not angry about about writing a paper that uh I mean even though I am infallible, I mean it's more that I pity him than that I'm angry about him. <laughs> Cuz actually they, their paper is kind of funny because I think even the title is kind of like very Canadian, very apologetic. Uh Oh, you it, it it does seem to be directly addressed towards me the title. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> so the title is there. And then the last paragraph is like, we're just being friends. We're trying to, you know, just, just bring up, a, a, you know, a counterpoint here. No offense, please. Nina, do not. I think he wants to make sure you do not kill him. Mm. Well, um, I do ha- currently have a hit out on him. Um, but uh, that's, uh, you know, for unrelated reasons. So I see. Um, well, I'm uh, how are you doing with wine? I'm I'm out. This seems like a, a, a great place to take a break. Little yes. little contract killing, little drink refill, and then uh, <laughs> well, and then let's talk about death. Hi everyone, Mickey here. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. Many of us, I hope all of us, are sticking close to home these days, and you might find yourself with lots of time on your hand. Um, if that's the case, uh, you might be interested in perusing the huge library of courses available on the uh, Great Courses Plus. I love the fact that I can listen to classes uh, on my phone, a tablet, PC, desktop. It doesn't really matter. It could be outside. It could be jogging. It could be inside. Um, it doesn't really matter. And um, there are just so many cool classes and great classes to uh, to to pick from. Um for example, some of you might be interested in a course called Money and Banking, What Everyone Should Know, which might help us contextualize the current stock market, for example. Or some of you might want to listen to courses uh, to pick up a new hobby like gardening, cooking, practicing yoga, even uh, speaking a new language. For example, um, I found the course, uh, which pertains to one of my hobbies, uh, The Addictive Brain, uh, a course that uh, speaks about addiction, the psychology of neuroscience and reward. And they have an entire class on the science of marijuana, uh, where, of course, marijuana is controversial, but also legal in many places now. So if you want to pick up a new hobby, learn about an old hobby, uh, The Great Courses Plus might be a place for you to do the, uh, that very thing. Uh the Great Courses Plus is a great offer uh, to get you started for our listeners. Right now, for our listeners, there's a special limited time offer, a free month of unlimited access to the entire library of The Great Courses Plus. Uh, but to get this offer, you need to sign up through our special URL. Uh, so start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers to get your free month. Again, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers to get your free month and start your adventure and start your learning. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter at four beers pod is the show's handle. We both check that. So you can at mention us. You can DM us. If you'd prefer to email us, uh, our email address is four beers pod at gmail.com. Uh, that will go to both of us as well. Finally, our website as always is four beers.fireside.fm where you can listen to any of our episodes and you can drop us a line there using the contact form as well. If you like, uh, as always, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on, um, I used to say iTunes. I'm trying to train myself now to say Apple podcasts. Um, wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, please rate and review us because it helps other people discover the show. Uh, Mickey, do you have anything that you'd like to talk about before we get back to the content? Um, well, I just want to thank, uh, some of our listeners who, uh, some of, some of you guys are, are kind enough to, to email us and, 
tell us when we're wrong or tell us where, where you agree with us. And we, we appreciate all uh, the emails. Uh, sometimes we can't uh, fully answer them, but we, all, we read them all and um, we like them. Uh, I want to thank especially uh, Alan Hawes, uh, who sent us a couple of emails over the past uh, month or so. And I, I actually um, really find his emails insightful and funny and um I feel I've learned a lot. Uh, William McAuliffe as well uh, sent us uh, a nice email about effect sizes and clearly engaged with uh, one of our episodes when that was the topic. So I encourage you all to keep on uh, sending us emails because uh, we enjoy interacting with you. Yes, we do. Um, Mickey, should we have a quick chat about what we're drinking before we get back to it? Yeah, this will be really short. I'm drinking the exact same thing. So, uh, you know, in in an ideal world here, well, you and I would be drinking this together. So, uh, Corinna... Uh, got us uh, two different beers uh, times two for you know, because we thought we'd be live, but uh, I mean in person sitting together. Uh, that's not happening. So I'm drinking all of it, uh, UL. Um, so this is uh, again a Helios uh, from Braustella uh, from Cologne, Germany. Well, I'm glad you're willing to make that sacrifice and drink all the beer, and I appreciate it. Uh, I have not yet finished my bottle of wine, so I'm just going to keep going on that. And uh, Nina, you're still going strong on the uh, oolong, or have you switched? Um, I have switched to um, um, un- unmitigated water. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. You really you took that up. Enough. I didn't dilute it at all. It's just right. water. No lemon, mm-hmm. no nothing. Exactly. I like it straight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's see. Uh, I guess uh, I, I have the privilege of the next question. Um, and we often like to ask our academic guests how they got, um, to where they are. So, um, what made them decide to go to grad school in psychology in the first place? Um, how they decided what to study and then how, what was their path to their, the academic job that they have now? So would you mind kind of telling us your brief, um, academic biography? Um, yeah, I always find these questions tough because, what you have to realize when you look under the hood a lot of times in how people make these decisions is that there's not really much there. It's just like, I don't know, this seemed like a good idea at the time, and now I'm still doing it. Mostly still seems like a good idea. <laughs> I'm so glad you're willing to admit that because that's been my experience too, but the people don't like that answer, right? They're like, I thought you had a plan. And it's like, nope. I think that it's comforting. It should be comforting in a way, right? Because maybe you think like, oh, I need to feel a certain way. And if I don't, then I'm not uh, going to my true calling. Well, you know, the truth is that um, most of us, not all of us, most of us have varied interests and talents. And uh, we could do well in a lot of uh, walks of life, areas of study and so forth. And I don't know. I feel like once you take the perspective, it takes some of the pressure off. Uh, that being said, I knew uh, uh, pretty early on, even in college, that I wanted to go to graduate school and study moral cognition. Uh, I mean, I I don't know if the word a philosopher might object to my use of the word know there, um, because I, I really know. Well, uh, nonetheless, it's been the case that I consistently have wanted that Um and and then ended up doing it. And I, but I, I don't attach any special significance to that. It's just that, well, it, it's something that continued to interest me. So I'm still doing it. I guess I, I'd like to hear a little more about how that played out in um, your grad program. And then I, I know you did a couple of postdocs before you you did this job, got this job. Um, so how did that uh, uh, how did work, work for, for you? Me? 
Well, uh, at the time that I started graduate school, there almost no one was studying moral psychology. Um, there were maybe like three or four labs, like max. Um, and so I ended up going to University of Michigan. And so like all, and all the labs that studied moral psychology were not accepting graduate students that year. You know, all four of them or whatever. So, all right. <laughs> I guess I'm not going to go into a lab that is like moral psych because it, it's just not available. So I, I decided to go to University of Michigan because I figured it's a gigantic department. I think it's the biggest psych department in the whole country um, in terms of number of faculty. And uh, I was like, you know, if I don't like the person that I initially went to, it doesn't work out with the person I, I you know, I initially go to work with, I find someone else. Uh, as it turns out, that is exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> I didn't get along with my graduate advisor in the first year and ended up working with some other amazing people um, who were very indulgent with me and allowed me to study uh, moral cognition, even though they themselves did not focus on that. And then how did you decide uh, what postdocs to do? Was that about choosing uh, an advisor, choosing a place that you wanted to be, some combination of the two? Well, yeah. I mean, it, part of what it was about is finding a lab that actually had money to fund a postdoc. So right. As, <laughs> as it turns out, um, um, not everyone just has postdoc money lying around. And in particular, people who do moral psychology don't tend to have these giant factory type labs like you might find, say, in a cognitive neuroscience lab, um, where they just have a postdoc that's like available and open. Um, so really, uh, at least, um, for my first, uh, postdoc, which was at Duke, that was, a uh, you know, largely because, okay, here, there's, there were some people there that did stuff related to moral cognition and also behavioral ethics. Um, and then I also, uh, had money to contribute, uh, to the cause. Um, for my second postdoc, which was at Yale, that was funded by a Templeton grant that I had written with some people and, you know, written, given myself a line in it for, um, my salary. Um, and so at, at that point it was just about uh, selecting, um, and the environment where I wanted to do that. And Yale was the right environment for that because George Newman was there and Josh Nob and, and even, uh, Paul Bloom, who, um, a as we've discussed, I'm very angry with, uh, yes, your, your enemy, Paul Bloom, uh, yes, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to harm him, it's helpful to actually be close to him. So that makes sense as a, as a move. So I'm curious, you know, this, this Templeton postdoc just sounds ideal, right? You have your own money. You get to go do whatever you want. Uh, you get to choose who you want to do it with. After that, did your, the tenure track that job that you now have seem like almost a step down? No. Oh my God. No. Okay. I see your smile. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. No. <laughs> And it used to make me so angry when faculty members would be like, oh, I would. I remember one of them in particular. I won't I won't reveal his name, but he is a piece of work, this one. Um, and he would always say, like, I just wish, you know, I would take a pay cut of 50 percent just to be able to do what you do. And I was like, you'd have to take a pay cut of 80 percent. Um <laughs> <laughs> I make, you know, nothing compared to like a full professor in a business school. Like, give me a break. Right. Like um, how much do they imagine postdocs make? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
not not a lot, not a lot, a l- only a little more than a graduate student, right? Um, and uh, uh, but but it's not just about the, the salaries. It, uh, the much more important thing is the the stability and security, and like knowing that you actually found a tenure track job that's going to put you on a path. Being a postdoc is inherently uncertain and it's itinerant. And you have to be applying for jobs the whole time. Um, it, I mean, it maybe it sucks a little bit less than being a grad student in terms of uncertainty, but all those same questions about like, am I going to actually find a tenure track job? And if I don't, what will I do? And what what would I what else would I want to do? And did I waste <laughs> ten years of my life? You know, all these. <laughs> fun questions are, are there and pressing down on you during the postdoc. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely had uh, a time. So during my, I did a two year postdoc after grad school and I applied for a bunch of jobs at the end of the first year of the postdoc and I got nothing. And I was really having the like, fuck this. And what's my plan B kind of thoughts, like pretty like concrete ones of like, okay, what else? What else could I be doing? Um, and I wonder, like, yeah, you talked earlier about, like, well, we could be doing lots of things. What were some of the other things that you considered? Like, you must have had those times, too, where you're thinking of, like, well, if not well, this. Well, the, the, the problem with me is all the other things that I think I would be good at and that I would want to do uh, are even less stable um, and uh, pay worse um, than being a, a professor, even a postdoc. So being some sort of freelance writer or a novelist or being an artist or a journalist. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> there were actually the reason I decided to get my PhD was I thought this is safer than the other than getting an MFA. This is the prudent choice for Nina um, <laughs> is to get the PhD. Um, as opposed to the MFA or just like kind of striking out on my own and being a freelancer immediately. Um, so, uh, I, I will say that the way, cause I, I mean, my postdoc was long. I, I was a postdoc for five years. Um, so by the end of that fifth year, I had told myself, I was like, cause I, you can just, at least if you have a facility for writing grants, which, uh, I, I do, um, you in principle could just keep writing those grants and being on soft money, but I didn't want to do that. That I thought was a waste of time and talent and, and so forth. And, uh, so at, at the end of that fifth year at Yale, um, I just said, you know, and I'm not even going to apply for anything else. I'm going to wait until I have a decision. It's really going to force my hand to actually decide, is this really what I want? I don't just want to kind of sleepwalk through it. Cause I thought I was maybe getting potentially to that stage of just the sleepwalking. Um, and, I actually had uh, already heard from, I'd had a number of interviews that year. I, I, I thought they w- went well, but I didn't get offers. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, the one place I was waiting to hear from was Wharton. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not going to get a Wharton job. I mean, I got rejected from all the other worst schools, um, <laughs> and um, um, including Harvard, you know. I just want to make sure we're clear on what's worse. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so I I, um, I was monitoring my internet activity for my website very closely and, uh, you know, seeing, like, what hits were coming in. And I noticed that there was this week 
where that was getting all these IP hits from the Wharton domain. And I was like, oh my God, they're talking about me. And it clearly it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And it was like happening like on all the days and including Friday. And then it was just at like, you know, Friday morning, it just stopped. And I was like, this is it. This must be the day that they're meeting. By the way, now that I'm at Wharton, Friday is the day when we have all of our like administrative meetings. Um, but I was just using pure kind of like sleuth work and just I had nothing better to do than just like kind of obsess about this stuff. Um, and, uh, and I was like, okay, well, that clearly today is the day that they made their decision. And I wait and then it's five o'clock and then it's six o'clock. And I was like, well, fuck, I didn't get this offer. And, um, so I thought, all right, well, you know, you just need to kind of go out and clear your head. I went on a hike, um, just to kind of like do some mood regulation and just like be out in nature. And I got home and I was very tired and I was like, I'm going to think about my future tomorrow. And just like really think hard about what I'm going to do. And I see an email. It's like I'm brushing my teeth. I'm about to go to bed. I see an email from uh, the chair of the department uh, saying, uh, re your application. I was like, all right, well, we know what this is. Um, And I was like, better just to rip off the Band-Aid tonight and then sleep on it and strategize tomorrow. And I read the email and I was like, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this email. It doesn't have the word not in it. Um, it says that we are happy to offer you the job and that we are going to give you this job. And I was like, well, it didn't even come as a phone call. Um, but it's better in a way that it didn't because now I have this kind of record of this, like, you know, I made sure I read it like five or, or 70 times, uh, before I called my parents, um, cause I didn't want to, you know, be wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it just shows how much chance plays in everyone's life path, right? I mean, that, that easily could have zigged instead of zagged. And I'm like very, very uh, aware of that. And I think other people should be as well, right? That that's, you know, the chance is, uh, I mean, a huge factor in all of our lives. Yeah, yeah, I can I can relate to all of that. I I remember the reloading my web page analytics, you know, multiple times a day to be like, <laughs> who's been looking uh, at my papers? Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I only ever had one offer at a time, right? Like I get asked sometimes like, so how did you decide to take this job? And it's like, well, they're the one, <laughs> one place I would have. Me. <laughs> so it was an easy decision. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks, UFD. Um, Mickey, can you relate to any of this or, or back in your day where they just handing out jobs to anyone? Oh yeah. Back in my day, someone just, you know, made a phone call and today I got this, I know this guy can, you know, can he get a job? And the next day I had a job. I, you know, you know, put my stuff in my car and the next day I was teaching. Um, yeah, that, that's yeah. How it for me. it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, um, sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh, but there were, yes, I'm, we've all heard colleagues have that exact same story. No, it was very traumatic and stressful for me. And the first time I went to the job market, I got zero and I thought I would have to uh, do something else. And then thankfully I stuck it out and uh, got a couple of job offers the following year. But that's a long time ago now. Um, but okay, so Nina, I want to, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to time and I want to make sure we talk about uh, uh, some fun stuff uh, in addition to, uh, the research was also fun, but uh, well, so much. That's okay. You don't have to sugarcoat it. Tell me how the research was pretty dry and boring. Um. <laughs> not, not, not at all. But okay, uh, in, in Nina's world, what's worse? Uh, pop philosophy books or pop psychology books? Oh, Jesus. This is a Sophie's Choice. Um, well, you know, there don't seem to be that many good pop philosophy books and that, or that many of them. 
And so purely because you have fewer to choose from, I would say that pop philosophy books are worse, but they're not worse in principle. I think they're just worse because there's fewer of them. And so there's fewer good, good ones. Okay. Cause, uh, in one of your, we're going to talk, we're going to have an entire segue, I hope on this epic, uh, book review, but, uh, you, you made this point about pop philosophy books, which I'm not sure we can make the same point about pop psych books. And that is that, um, you argued that it, it edifies the reader. It makes them feel smarter. It makes them feel like they're doing, they're eating their vegetables. So they're doing something good uh, for themselves, and they leave, you know, uh, feeling smarter. I'm not sure people feel that way after reading uh, pop psych books. Um, but of course, it's an illusion. Both are, you know, it's an illusion to feel better by yourself after reading, let's say, a bad uh, pop philosophy book. So, wouldn't we argue pop philosophy worse? Uh, you're using my own words against me, there, Mickey. Um... I, I listen. I think that a lot of pop psych books are like that too. It's like I'm going to edify myself. I'm going to learn about you know the mind or the human condition. Um, it's not just like a fun beach read, but something that you're doing to either improve yourself or improve your life at work, uh, um, or just you know be more learned. Um, but as it turns out, a lot of these pop books, uh, they they are not all of them, but you know a lot of them are are pretty middle brow and not super kind of full of insights. You might say devoid of insights. Will there be a uh, Nina Strominger pop psych book? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. I have an agent. Yep. Um, my goal is, you know, just to be... I was thinking about this. Um, uh, so uh, obviously the, the path that I'm on is to be, you know, the next, say, Max Bazerman. Uh, but then I was trying to figure out if I'm like the female Max Bazerman, am I Maxine Bazerman or am I Max Bazer woman? Um, and so I'm still kind of working that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's ways to do it that hopefully, uh, don't suck, but I'm going to just be exploring that space, uh, after tenure. Okay, excellent. Okay, so you're you're obviously hilarious. Uh, I, I think at the end of the show, we'll, we'll, we'll on, in our show notes, we'll we'll put a link to your your Twitter account, which is highly entertaining because um, you just you're, you're hilarious. I just want to know about the creative process for these tweets. Is it just like you know, I'm not a naturally funny person, so for me to come up with something funny, it takes a lot of thought, and ninety percent of the time, like it it falls flat. Um, are you putting lots of thought into your tweets? You just like no. riffing and yeah. some of them hit, some of them don't. Uh, yeah, I'm not really putting, I used to put more effort in, when I had Facebook, I put more effort into the Facebook posts, um, but then I I just, uh, I tired of Facebook and then decided it was evil. And so <laughs> I don't, so the uh, Facebook stuff, I used to actually put uh, more effort into. Twitter is uh, m- much more effortless. The only thing I'm really attending to is the question of, Will this get me fired? Um, and I need to be reasonably certain that it won't. Uh, and then, you know, press send. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I really don't, I really don't consider my, my Twitter account that funny. And I think you're overselling it. Um, and someone said to me today, <laughs> um, I, I had a, you know, another, my whole day is just Zoom meetings now. Um, and, uh, I had a, a zoom meeting with someone who I've not met in person, uh, but a, a colleague, uh, and we were talking about, you know, collaborating. Um, and he at one point mentioned, you know, like, I, I love your Twitter feed, but, um, I, I really don't understand the joke that you're doing now. Um, which is, 
the the joke that I'm doing now, uh, if you could call it that, is I've just been saying that I'm not going to date anyone older uh, than 60. And then as each day goes by of the quarantine, uh, 59, 58, um, due to coronavirus and, you know, safety concerns. Um, and um, and my colleague was like, well, yeah, I don't really understand that. Can you explain it to me? Um, and then I pan- I was like, well, because, of course, once you explain the humor, it it, uh, it does tend to lose some of its ability to in- induce laughter and mirth. Um, uh, but nonetheless, I, I soldiered on because I felt that I owed him an explanation. Um, and I was like, well, you know, it's like, you know, coronavirus tends to kill people who are older. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I got that part. And I was like, yeah. And then the idea is that it's like this ticking time bomb. So at some point, like in 40-ish days... I'm going to start, like, advocating for statutory rape. And so, um, you know, at some point before then, hopefully the quarantine will end. And so there's a dramatic tension there. And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a little bit too highbrow for me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I I still don't get it. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's not funny uh, and it might get me fired, but we'll just see. We'll just see how the next 40 days play out. It's definitely funny. I, uh, you, well, I actually, I, I wasn't paying attention, but you all pointed it out to me. I'm like, oh yeah, look, every day it's, it's getting younger. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been paying attention. So I want to say one last thing about, uh, uh, you know, your humor, and I, I think you all, you want to get in there. Um, I, I, I've seen over the years, um, somewhat funny author notes. Uh, you know, occasionally, like I remember one thing, I, I don't remember the author now, thanked like the goalie for the New Jersey Devils, you know, for winning the Stanley Cup that year. Something, you know, something, oh, this person has a personality. Um, but yours, uh, one that, that I read of yours was, is, is the funniest. Um, and it got me actually back into actually Googling the music. So this is the one, it's from that same, I think is the author response to the 2014 emotion review paper. And you, you start by saying, I would like to thank Snap, Soul to Soul, and CNC Music Factory who watched over me while writing the final draft of this paper. Um, so I like that because you're mentioning, um, you know, dance music from the early 90s, which is when I was actually going to clubs and dancing. I was, so the soul, I used to love that, like yeah. all those songs, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Snap. I actually listened to like, you know, uh, The Power last night, just, you know, to remember, oh yeah, I used to love that song. Um <laughs> But then you also wrote, you know, who watched over me. So anyways, I just, I, I thought it was hilarious. Um, so thank you. Yeah, well, um, well, don't thank me. Thank the musical stylings of uh, early 90s dance music. But I'm considerably older than you. So how, well, how are you listening to you know, early 90s? Well, you know, uh, I've also heard of like Bob Dylan and the Beatles. I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> I've, I'm just... <laughs> Yeah, Bob Dylan, The Beatles, and CNC Music Factory. <laughs> you know, the classics. For the ages, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so anyhow, thank you for... for I, I listened to like all the greatest hits from Snap. And I realized I know like about five of their songs. <laughs> yeah, um, they really only had one or two that actually went on the radio. So, Nina, I was, uh, you know, in preparation for today's podcast, I was uh, reading some of your papers, um, and admittedly, I was high. Um, but I have not laughed this hard uh, from reading a bloody academic paper as I, I as I laugh with reading your uh, the meaning of disgust a refutation from an emotion review 2014, where you like went to town on Colin McGinn's book uh, the meaning of disgust. I must is it will you give me permission to read some of your lines because they're so hilarious? Please. All right. Okay. So uh, 
This is the opening. Uh, in disgust research, there is shit, and then there's bullshit. McGinn's theory belongs to the latter category. Um, so it's like, all right, okay, a different kind of book review. Uh, somewhere towards the latter half. Um, this is now, I believe, a quote from McGinn. So you're quoting McGinn. Um, Diamonds, being forever, do not remind us of death, he muses. Um, is this why women tend to love jewelry so? Because of a relatively high level of bodily self-disgust? Just asking. Is McGinn a sexist, penis-gazing blowhard? Just asking. Um, I, I laughed quite hard at that one. Uh, the sad fact is the reader would learn more about disgust by reading Mad Magazine. Um, a, a very choice words. And then this is, I think, my favorite. I was laughing so hard about this one. Um, who can deny the mood-destroying effect of an errant flatus just at the moment of erotic fervor? This is a quote from McGinn, he writes. McGinn's theory is just such a flatus, <laughs> threatening to spoil an exciting intellectual moment for the rest of us. Sometimes with ideas, as with farts, it's better to just hold it in. So, I mean, where did you get the moxie to write this paper? And what editor, you know, bless him or her, you know, allowed this to go through? Yeah, um, all of these are fair questions. Um, I was assigned to review this book when I was in my final year of graduate school. And I was really excited when I received the invitation because I was like, this is, I made it, you know, I'm getting books sent for to review. Now, what I didn't know was that uh, the editor had already sent this book out to several other people, all of whom flatly said no, because they're like, I'm not going to review this. Um, and in my mind, I was like, I'm special. And so I start reading it. Um, and it was such unmitigated garbage, I thought, I have a real problem on my hands. Because I know the way the book reviews are supposed to be written is you, you find a little good, you find a little bad, you wrap it up in a bow, and then you send it off into the world. And I went to one of my friends who was a philosopher, and I said, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I, I've looked, I can't find anything nice to say about this book. Um, and my friend said, you know, McGinn is known for writing really cutting, cruel reviews. So I, I wouldn't hold back. I mean, if he can dish it out, he can take it. And no one will feel sorry for him. And so I was like, oh, a carte blanche. But even then, I knew, I was like, I'm not, I want to really, it to be clear. I don't want it to be diluted, um, D-I-L, diluted, um, uh, in my message. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to overwrite it. I'm going to put in more curse words <laughs> than one normally would and, and be very strong and maybe call him sexist. Um, and, uh, or not just call him sexist, right? But a sexist penis gazing blowhard. And then I figured, you know, when the editor goes through it, they'll boldlerize penis gazing and blowhard, but I'll get sexist. So there was a real strategy to it. Um, but one, there was one problem, uh, which is, so I wrote it, um, and I sent it off to the editor. Editor said, uh, you know, this is good. We'll, we'll take out some of the words, you know, much as I expected, right? Um, and, uh, uh, but there was this sort of like soft kind of verbal agreement. In the meantime, I sent it to one of my friends who sent it to one of their friends. Uh, and then, uh, within, you know, 24 hours, like half of the field had read it. Uh, at which point, um, McGinn also was notified of its existence. Um, and I, I've heard through very indirect channels that he may have had a hand in getting it quashed at the original journal uh, where it was commissioned. And in fact, um, I've also heard that 
Um, he uh, was uh, trying to sue me. This actually is not the first time that would have been the first time that he sued a graduate student for a negative book review. Um, so um, he's a he's a litigious fellow, um, very active um, in litigation um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> writing books on which he has no expertise. Um, and uh, but none of that came to pass for me. Thank God. Uh, I mean, there was no legal basis for it. Um, and then, uh, you know, that was it for the book was the book review wasn't going to be published, um, until a few years later, the editor, uh, at, at a motion review contacted me and he said, you know, I love this review. Um, do you have anything else? And I was like, you know, um, that thing was never published. You want to maybe publish that? Um, and so this was, you know, at this point, years after the fact, um, and the conceit became, well, it's not a book review, rather it's a, 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 a comment on the theory and then we'll invite other people to comment and then you can reply and so forth. Um, so yeah, that's how that all came to be. But in the course of, um, I ironically, um, you know, I had always anticipated this, uh, the censorship that would come down upon me. Um, and the editor said, you know, emotion review, we don't publish book reviews, um, so you need to do something about that. It turns out that what he meant was go through the document and change the word book to the word theory. And now, presto changeo, it's not a book review anymore. It's a theory review. Uh <laughs> and so ironically, those, uh, oh, it's like, you know, those three or four instances of the word book are the only way that my words were changed from the original and the print version. Well, this, this review is a gift. Um, and uh, we'll definitely put it up on the show notes, and I encourage all our listeners to read it. It's it's beautifully written. Um, it's also relatively short, so you know, easy read, and it's just brilliant. So uh, oh, thank you so thank much you. for writing it. And my, my my career didn't end up getting destroyed as a result. So um, let that be a lesson to you kids. Always take lots of risks and alienate your colleagues. Okay. Uh, Nikki, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think we should still hit? Um, well, we, we should give Nina a chance to, uh, to promote any, anything she would like to promote. Yes, we should do that. Nina, would you like to promote anything? Well, I hear that McGinn has a new book coming out. Oh, <laughs> is it amazing? <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, I have nothing. I have nothing to promote. You should have me on sometime when I have something to promote. I have nothing except for my own personality. Great. Well, we will have you back um, for your book tour. Mm. Um, oh, will yeah. You? I guess we can promote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we like to say no to those things, but, uh, you know, if yeah. it's an old friend, we might make an exception. Um, I will say people should follow Nina on Twitter because it's true that it's a pale shadow of what you were on Facebook. I remember those days, having been your Facebook friend back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um it uh, those posts were hilarious. The, the Twitter is it's fine. It's 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 much more it, yeah. It's much more um, uh, uh, cultivated. Um, actually, wait. No, I do have something to promote. I've been hovering just below five thousand followers for months, and every time it feels like I'm getting close. It's like I I lose. I think I'm now losing. So uh, you're alienating people with this like. <laughs> oh, I'm going to alienate a lot of people humor. before all this yeah. is over. And so I could really use your listeners help in helping me pass that 5000 threshold because then my life will have been worth living. All right. Our vast army of listeners is going to put you <laughs> over the top. Who, 
Can you remind can you remind readers what your Twitter <laughs> handle is? That'll be in the show notes too, as well for people who don't want to type it out. Um, Nina, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real uh, pleasure having you chat with us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me.